order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood. From my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood. From my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood. From my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues and the many fields of knowledge, all our steps on the path to omniscience, may these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Om Manju Shri, please accomplish this. Just like the six ornaments and the two supreme ones who beautify our world, you were their equal in your mastery of compassion, learning, and realization, yet you practice hidden in the forest in sacred solitude. Longchenpo perfected samsara and nirvana in the state of dharmakaya, chume uzer, stainless light. At your feet I pray, grant your blessings so I may realize the natural state, the true nature of mind. So we meet again. Believe it or not, you know, so uh, just briefly, oh, so this is uh, we're in class number nine or ten, I think ten tonight. Thanks. The triple nature, the ground and the levels of consciousness. So uh, here we go through the evolution of the world. And uh, welcome. It's nice to see all of you. At least those of you I can see. And, uh, you know, I, just briefly, I, uh, I was familiar with this book, The Root Text, from the translation by Herbert many, many years ago. That came out many, many years ago. But not the, uh, the commentary. So I sort of thought, oh, this would be a relatively easy, practice-oriented, fun, beautiful text to go through. And, you know... Maybe maybe some people, it might appear as like uh, arrogance or um, uh, something like that, but it's really just sheer stupid inspiration to, to launch out into the study of a book like this. <laughs> now we're stuck. May with... I disagree? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's all the things that you said it would be. It's got a little bit hairier than than that, though. No, a lot of uh... a little, but <laughs> it's wonderful. It is You're amazing. Here. It's good. It's good. Quite uh, challenging, but good. and profound and challenging. So, no point in rushing through, through these things. Uh, uh, so, I guess, uh, particularly because it's easier for me, I'll go through in the style of the slow. Reading, close reading, and feel free to interject and uh, comment or ask questions, uh, but try not to take up too much time. So we might get through 
all the important parts tonight. So we're on page uh, 179 called The Three Natures. And uh, The Three Natures is a scheme that was introduced uh, in the sutras of the third turning. I, I, I didn't mention this before, but um, just briefly, the teachings of the Buddha are viewed by the uh, uh, Mahayana tradition to have uh, been laid out or presented or evolved in this world in three cycles. And these are Sutrayana teachings, not the Vajrayana teachings. The Vajrayana is considered like a separate, uh, not, not part of the tricycle. But uh, there's the three turnings of the wheel of the Dharma, the Buddha. And uh, the first one is quite simple. And, and all Mahayana schools agree that the first turning focuses on things like the Four Noble Truths. And it's very literal. Talks about um, suffering and people, samsara and realms and skandhas and ayatanas and tattus and tigers and lions and bears and so forth. And uh, then the second one is famously characterized uh, by the teaching of uh, the Sutra of the Heart of Transcendent Knowledge, the Heart Sutra, so-called Heart Sutra, focusing on emptiness, the profound emptiness of all phenomena. And um, uh, and there's a sutra by the Buddha that elaborates the scheme of these two turnings. And then there's another sutra of the Buddha that elaborates a scheme that has three turnings and adds a third turning where um, it says that the second turning, which was characterized by this other sutra, as being uh, uh, definitive, the emptiness uh, teachings were characterized as being definitive by this, by a certain sutra, and held that way by many schools of Mahayana Tibetan Buddhism. That the emptiness teachings are definitive, as opposed to provisional or interpretable, and therefore the emptiness teachings are supreme compared to the first turning, because the Buddha uh, revealed the true int intent of his teaching, his way to liberation. And uh, then there's this view that the third, there's a, there was a third turning of the Buddha, where he introduced the three natures. Um, he also introduced Buddha nature to Tagva to Garva. But the sutra that lays out this scheme of the three natures, interestingly enough, does not talk about Buddha nature. Which is very interesting because most people that know this scheme immediately say the third turning is Buddha nature, where really in that sutra the third turning involves the three natures, the scheme of the three natures, and the eight consciousnesses, the eightfold consciousness scheme. Whereas the second turning does not talk about the eight consciousnesses. It talks about there being six consciousnesses. And then from there, we get endless differences in the uh, particular in the Tibetan Buddhist schools between, well, was the third turning uh, a, 
um, evolution in the sense of a more supreme teaching than the second turning emptiness teachings? Or was it sort of a backstepping, uh, a, a teaching that sort of toned down the profound, frightening teaching of emptiness so that uh, beings could have a gradual approach to that profound meaning? And that gradual approach uh, was given in the form of the three natures and the Aliya Vijnana and then Buddha nature as a way of uh, sort of bringing beings along in the Mahayana without scaring them off, scaring the shit out of them with the, with the heart suture, with the emptiness, the complete emptiness of the second nature. So that's one view. And then the other view is that the third turning is indeed uh, an advancement and more supreme than the second turning. That the second turning emphasized the emptiness aspect of phenomena and did not discuss or reveal the luminous side of uh, phenomena, the nature of luminous manifestation and the, the uh, uh, supreme teaching of Buddha nature. And the luminous side is, is revealed in the three natures, and uh, it um, and separately the Buddha nature was taught. So there's when you look at the different sutras, different sutras present. Uh, when you look at the Mahayana sutras, uh, they are they uh, tend to present themselves as adhering to either the, that characterization of the second turning as supreme or the third turning as supreme. And so there's different schools of thought about which these are. And uh, simplistically speaking, the Nyingma tradition views the third turning of the wheel of the Dharma as being supreme and an advancement in subtlety over the second turning of the wheel of the Dharma. In that, as this, this sutra called the unraveling of the intent, of the Buddha's intent, in Sanskrit, the Samdhi Nirmochana, which we've seen some quotes from, um, or the conqueror's intent, revealing the conqueror's intent, um, says that the, there was a third turning that presented uh, the nuances of in what way things are empty and in what way things are not empty. So the third turning teachings are part of the, uh, I'm sorry, the three natures teachings are part of the third turning way of understanding the nature of reality. And uh, the, the further part of this story is that there, uh, there's said to be a tradition of Mahayana uh, teachings, uh, supposed people as well, and texts that that uh, took, understood the third turning sutras in a somewhat uh, literal way or simplistic way and uh, presented what's called mind only chitta mantra in Sanskrit. And um, their major sin from the point of view of the, of the later schools is that they held that the perfected, the truly perfected nature uh, is the mind and that the mind is ultimate, that there is an ultimate. And the Madhyamaka tradition 
criticized Sant and said, there is no uh, ultimate phenomena that you can point to. All phenomena are empty. And so um, basically all schools of Tibetan Buddhism come from that point of view of the Madhyamaka that says that um, the Chitta Mantra is not the supreme teaching. And so there are certain features of the Chitta Mantra tradition that uh, because they are uh, revealed in the third turning of the Wheel of the Dharma Sutras by the Buddha are viewed um, or are understood differently by schools such as the Nyingma than they are by the schools of the Chitta Mantra. So you'll see that um, Long Chenpa has gone to some lengths to, and as Wollstone uh, stated in his uh, commentary, that uh, you, you don't want to be a classified uh, affiliated with the Chitta Mantras because they're looked down upon by, by both traditions that hold the view of the second turning as supreme and the third turning as supreme. All of them view the Chitta Mantra as inferior to the Madhyamaka. So in doing this, those who hold to the second turning have a version of Madhyamaka that's different than those that hold to the third turning. Their version of Madhyamaka is different. So that was a preliminary effort to uh, sort of lay a ground, like the, the ground of all confusion, just to make sure that we all have an element of confusion present as we approach these teachings. And that said humorously, of course, Henrietta. And, and Rangtong and Shentong, which he brings up in here, is part of third turning? Um, or? So Henrietta just uh, spoke. Did I, did I throw a bombshell in there? And it was like fireworks. Two Tibetan terms that are further refinements on the traditions of, of Madhyamaka that uh, um, actually are not uh, what Longchenpa is talking about here. Longchenpa oh. really predates the development of, uh, of that split. Oh. Oh. And so when he mentions uh, self-emptiness and other emptiness, he's talking from a very different point of view. Oh, wow. Yeah, so we'll, we'll go through that to okay. some extent. But uh, it's important to, to understand that those are different. He, he, uh, he encounters the uh, sort of progenitor of the other emptiness system, the Zhentong system. Uh, during his lifetime, he meets uh, this gentleman named Dolpopa, who uh, sort of promoted and made the Zhentong system uh, a major system of Tibetan thought. Uh, and they reputedly hit it off. Uh, but I, I'm not sure when that meeting occurred. I, I sort of have a feeling it was after he wrote this, but I'm not sure. Uh, but he, he basically did not incorporate um, the Zhentong presentation into his writings. Supposedly he confirmed and agreed with Dolpopa, but it's not really reflected explicitly, at least in his writings. So, the three natures on page... Oh, I'm sorry, Cynthia. I, 
Um, I just wondered, I, when you were talking about the, when you were sort of laying the ground for this discussion, you noted that there was, I think, a sutra that elaborated, or I'm not sure if you meant one or multiple sutras that sort of characterized the second turning version and the third turning version. So yeah, hold, can you name what the, two, the sutras are that you were hold, referring to? You named one, but I didn't hear two. Uh, hold on one second. I have to get my fireworks on. Yes, sorry. All right, so you, I know you mentioned the Samdhinir Mochana Sutra. Was that the, I mean, as one of the ones that viewed the third as being the... The first sutra, oh. the sutra, hello. Yeah. Hello. Thank you. The first sutra that presents the second turning as supreme is called Akshaya Mati Nirdesha, the questions of Akshaya Mati, and that's A-K-S-H-A-Y-A-M-A-T-A. I, M A T I, sorry, M A T I, Akshaya Mati Nirdesha. Nirdesha means teaching, like in the Malakirti Nirdesha Sutra. And that one presents the second turning as supreme, and then the Samdhi Nirmochana. Samdhi Nirmochana presents uh, three turnings. Anyway. Thank you. Nature. So the imputed nature. The imputed nature is the is the quality of uh, of uh, dependent imputation that our conceptual mind creates uh, and projects onto the sense the experience that we receive through our senses and creates the fiction of things like uh, uh, self on the one hand is like extreme projection because there's actually no um, uh, referent in the form of uh, sense objects for the self. And on the other hand, we uh, impute things like tables and chairs and sutras and turnings and Zoom software and people and so forth. So the imputed nature is divided into two categories, the imputed nature that is free of all characteristics and the figurative imputed nature. The imputed nature free of characteristics refers to what does not exist at all, but is merely imputed by thought, such as the horns of a rabbit and the so-called self. So these are pure creations, things like uh, um, Disney World, unicorns, flowers in the sky, things like that. It refers in addition to mistaken tenant systems, like the belief in a God, a creator God, an all-powerful being. Um, and indeed, everything that is merely mind-posited, you know, anything that is like created by mind, like... Um, conceptual, any, any conceptual system of thought. So it's not that it's bad. Concept, some, you know, there are many conceptual systems of thought that uh, are helpful. 
but they're just impute imputations. Um, as in the case of names and their meanings. Uh, let's see, a person may be called Leo or Lion, but this name is not something that can be found anywhere in the person's body. So we project names onto uh, collections of phenomena or phenomena experiences. And there's really no relation between them other than uh, a decided upon and then agreed upon affiliation between the, the name and the term and a referent, a conceptual referent, mind you. A person, let's see, even if one were to explain its meaning, this is simply an assertion of the mind. It's all in your mind. It does not exist as an actual object to which speech refers through the expression of its characteristics or as an actual object of the thinking mind. They are of, are of a different order, as different as the word multitude and that which is meant by it. Things like collective nouns, like forests, multitude, flocks, things like that, um, are of this nature where uh, they're, they're totally generalized terms. You, know, you can't really point to a flock of birds or a multitude of beans or a forest. You, know, you can point, point in the direction of it, but you can't put your finger on them because there's no, no place that a forest begins and ends. By contrast, the figurative imputed nature refers to all the manifold things that appear to, uh, to the deluded mind, the world and the beings therein, like happiness and suffering, the aggregates, the elements, the, the um, elements are datus and the sources are the ayatanas and so on, since they do not exist in fact. So um, he's assuming that we've undergone the sort of basic understanding of the emptiness of phenomena that uh, is presented in the Mahayana tr tradition of the second turning of the Heart Sutra. There is no eye, no ear, no nose. All of these things have been refuted because they are names that are applied to um, uh, sense reference. But uh, they don't actually exist. They're all made up of uh, infinite number of parts. They, they're uh, instantly changing and there's no essence that continues that makes anything what it is. Since they do not exist in fact, but nevertheless appear to deluded minds in the manner of alternate, I mean dreams, they're referred to as the figurative imputed nature. And since they appear but are nevertheless non-existent, their non-existence being an idea that is superimposed, I'm sorry, their existence being an idea that uh, superimposed, they are referred to as the imputed nature, as it is said in the Yogacara Bhumi Shastra, which is a text by Asanga, who is affiliated with the third turning. All that is imputed has no being. It is created by a deluded mind. So the imputed nature is the quality of uh, names and terms and concepts that our minds live in. And 
uh, which doesn't mean that they're necessarily bad, but they do tend to be uh, deceitful and that they be, they make uh, beings like us believe that they're uh, the basis of designation. The, the uh, phenomena upon which we designate those terms, those ideas, actually, we believe that they actually match those terms. So when we look at a chair, we tend to think that there's a chair there. And we don't really realize that a chair is a conceptual imputation that we apply to an assemblage of sensory objects. Okay, the dependent nature, the nature that is uh, completely uh, interdependent upon causes and conditions. The dependent nature also has two aspects. It's very convenient. They each have two aspects. Um, the impure dependent nature refers to all the illusory appearances that manifest via the sense, the different sense doors, the impure aspects of the universe, such as earth, rocks, mountains, cliffs, and the rest, together with the universe's contents, <coughs> namely beings. This is a, a common way that uh, Buddhists refer to phenomena as there being uh, the container and the contained. The container is the universe that consists of the environment, and then there's the contained that are the beings. Interesting way of categorizing things. All these things are but the full development of the habitual tendencies of the mind. Now he's talking about the underlying phenomena upon which we project uh, imputed designations in the first nature. So, you know, we, we acknowledge that the imputations are conceptual fabrications, helpful or not, as they may be. And then there's something upon which we designate. And there's the impure and the pure. And the impure is all of these different things, the uh, container and the contained. Um, and, and I think he'll come back to why he calls them impure. The, the pure dependent nature, on the other hand, refers to the pure fields and all that appears within the sphere of the pure vision of the Buddhas. The Buddha fields, the seven precious things, such as luminous, unfathomable palaces, and so on. So the impure dependent nature are the sense objects of deluded sentient beings. And the pure dependent nature are the sense objects of enlightened beings. Enlightened beings see sacred world. They see Buddha fields. Are they actually considered sense objects for them? Uh, they, uh, I don't think we would use that term. I don't think we would use that term. Thank you. On this matter, certain people object that the dependent nature mentioned in the Yogacara literature. Can, can you help me note whether he uses the term Chitta Mantra ever? Yeah, he does. So he actually uses the terms Yogacara and Chitta Mantra separately. Um, 
and I'll wait till the Chitramatra mentioned to discuss that, but on this matter, certain people object. The dependent nature mentioned in the Yogacara literature is not tenable because it accounts for all phenomena as being exclusively gathered within the subjective experience of individual minds. Somebody uh, mute themselves, I think, Cynthia. There's like some background hum. Cynthia, can you mute? There, thanks. I do not consider this to be a proper subject of dispute. Phenomena produced through the habitual tendencies of the mind are not established in themselves. In the same way that the reflection of a face in a mirror is not the real face, even though it is produced independence thereupon. So he quickly jumps to the issue of whether these um, dependent nature phenomena are um, uh, merely mental um, contents. Are, are they in our mind or are they actually outside of our mind? And uh, he's taking the third option, which is very important to see that instead of going one way or the other and saying, well, whether, whether phenomena are the mind or whether phenomena exists outside of the mind, he says that phenomena don't really exist. And he's going to dwell on this uh, quite a bit, so we'll come through it a number of times. Moreover, the statement that all phenomena are gathered within the subjective experience of one's own mind calls for investigation. Here we go. Question is, are they gathered within the mind as mere perceived appearances? Or are they gathered therein as being the mind itself? So I guess on the one hand, he's saying, is it that uh, where sometimes people say, well, all we experience is our, is our mind's replication of phenomena and so phenomena all we know is what is uh, experienced in our mind that I believe is what he means by uh, are they gathered within the mind as mere perceived appearances or are they actually the mind themselves itself are they actually mind made or the, the same stuff as mine. In the first case, if phenomena are no more than perceived appearances, there's no need to wonder whether they are contained within the mind or not. If Because they, they are the mind. And there is no, uh, you know, they're basically saying the same thing. If on the other hand, one were to say that they were contained therein, there's no more than a futile, this is no more than a futile claim for an object by definition is by definition located extramentally. So he's taking it as a given that objects are extramental. And he doesn't give any reasoning for this, but says by definition, objects are extramental. In this, is Wollstone had mentioned that this thing about the mind itself and that that is um, that there were sort of two meanings of that yes and that, that related to when he was talking about the, the uh, sort of enlightened nature of mind 
versus just ordinary mind. And he said that it can be that same phrase could be sometimes used as either one of those. Is it? Was that what I think he was? I'm, he was, but in, that was in reference to a different quote, not a different topic, not this one. Okay. It, it would not be applicable to this. In the second case, how could such a position be tenable? The second case being um, that uh, phenomena are gathered therein as being the mind itself. Um, one might say that because phenomena derive from the mind, they are the mind. But this is like saying that a child produced from a woman is the woman, whereas this is clearly not the case. It would also mean that the filth excreted by the body were the body itself, whereas it's evident that that is not so. Different phenomena. So being derived from and uh, does not uh, mean the same. One could also object that since phenomena appear to the mind, they are the mind. Then it would follow that forms are the same as the visual consciousness, for they appear to the mind also. When we experience a sense object, there's the actual form, and there's the, the consciousness itself that appears to this. The form appears to the sense consciousness, and the sense consciousness appears to the mind. And since in the past it would appear within the experience of deluded beings, it would follow that he, he was the minds of such beings. You know, whatever you perceive is your mind. And if this were so, the absurd consequence would follow that the beings with deluded minds are Buddhas. Conversely, since beings appear to the Buddhas, it would follow that either all the beings were Buddhas, or that the Buddhas free from that the Buddha free from stain were an unenlightened being. Such defective conclusions are unavoidable. And it might be argued that if there is no mind, there is no phenomena. There are no phenomena. And this is why they are said to be the mind. But the problem here is that in that case, the actual cause and the results are rendered identical. Um, because if the former is not present, the latter cannot appear. So the, the, the mind being the cause and the result. Also, one's enemy and one's anger would be identical cause and result because if there were no enemy the anger aroused by him would not manifest. Moreover, it does not make sense to say that phenomena are the mind because they are mind created or in that case the painting becomes the painter since it was the painter who made it. I would, you know, Anything that we create we would then say would, would be the mind which would be absurd. How therefore can it be right to say that extramental phenomena earth, rocks, mountains, and cliffs are the mind? Be sure they are indeed the hallucinatory appearances produced by the mind's habitual tendencies. If they were actually the mind, it would follow that when a hundred people see a single vase, the vase seen by them all would be the consciousness of them all. In which case they would all have the same consciousness. And if one were to say this, then when one person attains Buddhahood, all beings would become Buddha. And when one being falls to the lower destinies, all beings would go there too. It would also follow that in the entire world there's but one single being, just as you or I for the entire aggregate of other beings would be none other than single, 
would be none other than that single being's mind. So the absurd consequences of um, everything being in one's mind. It would not be tenable for there to be any other being beside a single Buddha, such as Shakyamuni, for all the beings seen by him would be but his own mind. One may think that this is so, but the evident fact is that we are all here. <laughs> He's such a uh, actual, you know, so down-to-earth guy. It's like, you know, come on, stop philosophizing. We're here. Seems that there are many scholars nowadays who think in this way. All one can say is that they're extremely confused in their understanding of the Mahayana. And then he quotes a verse which the translators don't give any reference to. Their vast forms garlanded with lotuses, their ears with flowers adorned, their faces gleaming from the golden paint. They're just majestic elephants and nothing else. Uh, what are those appearances? So uh, it's a little hard to decipher what that quote is. Uh, referring to, but um, it seems to be referring to either the scholars that are confused and they're just like um, uh, elephants all duded up, or that phenomena are just all uh, duded up, or both, or neither. They could indeed be understood. What are these appearances? They could indeed be understood according to the stainless doctrine of the Chittamatra. Interesting that he says stainless, faultless, pure. The Chittamatra false aspectariums. Now we get into a sort of a ethereal world of the different types of Chittamatrans. <laughs> um, there's uh, there's two types of Chittamatrans, and one of those types has two types called false aspectarians and true aspectarians. It's, to sum it up simplistically, true aspectarians believe that uh, the appearances are the, the true manifestations of the mind. And that the mind, when it sees the phenomenal world, is truly appearing. That is a true appearance of the mind. And the false aspectarians view that all the appearances of phenomena are hallucinatory appearances created by deluded habitual tendencies. So uh, uh, scholars, teachers, traditions that affiliate themselves with the third turning uh, are, are said to be close to the false aspectarian Chittamatrans, but different, but they're closest. They say that the, the false aspectarian Chittamatrans come closest. Not sure if this is uh, relevant or meaningful at all to you, but. Uh, the latter do indeed say in their text that all that appears to oneself is indeed one's own mind, but the appearing object is not the mind. That's rather definitive. The appearing object is not the mind. Just like in the page before, an object is by definition located extramentally. He's trying to be a, a he, he, you know, he's revealing himself as being a very, uh, rather uh, clear prasangika madhyamaka of the different types of madhyamaka. The prasangikas are very sort of down to earth and simplistic about 
the relative truth. Yeah, there's phenomena. There's phenomena out there, and there's the mind, and you know we have diluted perception, and uh, there's no philosophizing about the relative. Right. So he then quotes again the Yogacara Bhumi Shastra by a Sangha that says, all appearances are the mind. And yet the objects that appear are not. So separating the objects and appearances. Objects and their appearance. Appearance is only in the mind. Objects are not in the mind. So there's a, a, a subtle insinuation that there's a world of objects that is beyond their appearance, which is sort of the major takeaway if you're trying to figure out, is there an ex, extra mental world and what is it like? It's, it does not have appearance. Eric? Yes, ma'am. Doesn't it say all perceptions are the mind? Thank you. Thank you very much. All perceptions are the mind. So, yeah, like, I, my, I, I was wondering what he means by perceptions. Yeah, so the perceptions uh, is what uh, is the reflection of phenomena in the mind, of objects in the mind, is the appearing object in the mind. Uh, he, and when he uses the analogy of the mirror, the face in the mirror, it's the reflection of the face in the mirror. It's a perception in the mind. So um, there's objects and appearance is the uh, sort of reflexive um, response of a sentient mind to the consciousness of an object. So all perceptions are in the mind. And yet the objects that appear are not the product of diluted tendencies from time without beginning, they're like floating hairs before the eyes. What, what does they refer to there? I believe they, that exactly that's the big question, right? Because he listed all appearances are the mind and yet the objects that appear are not. My guess is that he's talking about appearing. appearing. Perceptions, the perceptions. Um... No, or the uh, the the appearing the appearances, which are perceptions. Perceptions, yeah. okay. They the perceptions that appear are like floating hairs before the eyes. That's my hunch. Okay. All sensitarians, however, fail to distinguish between the perception that is the perceived appearance of an object. So here he defines it. And uh, you may, you may, at some point, find it helpful to note the Tibetan term. Uh, the false aspectarians, however, fail to distinguish between the perception, that is the perceived appearance of an object, which is what occurs in the mind of a sentient being, and the appearing object itself, the object that appears, the extra mental object. Because they've already dismissed the note, the aspectarian, false aspectarians have dismissed the possibility already of an external object, extra mental. When the mind clearly apprehends as separate from itself a mountain, which is the appearing object, 
with the thought, this is a mountain, a mental experience of a mountain occurs in dependence on the visual sense organ. And this aspect of the mountain, which is held by the mind whenever, wherever one happens to be, is the mind's own subjective experience. When one goes elsewhere, the appearing object, the actual mountain, does not go with one, but the propensity for it to appear to perception has been imprinted by that form of visual consciousness. So uh, just briefly, there's uh, the appearing object, the object that appears. There's the, uh, the perceived appearance, which he's also calling the aspect. Mm -hmm. And um, this uh, experience, a meaning generality, which is um, a, a concept. It's a technical term for a concept. A concept is a, a meaning generality in that uh, it comes to a general um, idea of the meaning of a term, mountain. So when we say mountain, we all have an image in our mind of what a mountain is. And it's different for all of us. And it's a little vague. You know, maybe you see Mount Fuji or you see some mountain you live near by or, you know, the Matterhorn or whatever but you, you have like an image of a mountain in your mind that could, maybe is morphing as we're talking about it. It's a general idea of, an, of a mountain. And you've um, achieved that general notion of mountain by vaguely obstructing or eliminating everything else that doesn't quite fit in the category of mountain to create the image of mountain. Uh, Laura. Lori, sorry. Um, you know, it's so interesting because this is pretty much how psychologists describe perception. You know, when I learned, you know, I was a psychology major in college, and this is all very, this, this theory of how it works, it's very similar to what I learned, you know. I mean, it's much more... There's, there, there are many more details and, um, you know, mapping to different parts of the brain and the eye. But this, oh, this theory, this, the way it works and that it's, that it's not like you see exactly the same thing that everybody else sees. That was a big, that's a big discovery in psychology that that's what's going on in perception. Yeah. So it's kind of, yeah. it's kind of cool. And and also the recognition in uh, physiology or neurophysiology that what we see, to use the, the, the verb in the visual consciousness world, uh, but more generally what uh, is called what we apprehend, sort of what we cognize, is the appearing object, the object that appears in our uh, sorry, we, we apprehend the perceived object, 
-hmm. our perception of some external phenomenon. And we never actually see the external phenomenon because our, our senses are, are, have developed throughout innumerable millions of years to uh, perceive certain, in a certain way, certain things. And that's what we see. And the relationship between that and the actual external phenomena uh, is mutually exclusive. But yeah. we assume they're the same. We assume that they're the same. Right. Uh, let's see, a meaning generality, the meaning, the mental image of the mountain, non-existent yet clearly appearing. So this... Uh, concepts are not, do not exist in uh, relative reality nor ultimate reality. So that's why he calls them non-existent. Yet they appear clearly. We, we clearly perceive these concepts in our mind, but they have no actual existence in the, in the sense of manifestation. Um Manifest vividly to the mental organ. So, so based on the perceived object, the mind, the perceived object that ex, that uh, is developed or appears in the sense consciousness, based on its interaction with an external object, it transposes the sense, the uh, the data into electrical images, electrical chemical pulses, impulses in the neuronal system. And it creates a neuronal representation of, the, of some outer phenomena. And um, our sixth consciousness creates the, uh, a concept of mountain, of whatever it is, as the so-called thing that it thinks it's perceiving when the sixth consciousness encounters the perceived object in the sense uh, consciousnesses of uh, any of the types. Unexistent, you're clearly appearing manifests vividly to the mental organ, the sense sixth consciousness. Therefore, all the perceptions or perceived appearances evaluated by one's intellect which we learned last time is the mental factors and last, uh, their last readings. The collection of mental factors is what he's called, what the translators are translating as intellect. Together with their, uh, together with their attention, our mind, therefore all the perceptions were perceived appearances evaluated by one's intellect together with their retention, our mind. Retention maybe is memory. I'm not sure what he means by retention. Likewise, the perceptions of all other beings, of all the other beings, and the retention of such perceptions are mind. Nevertheless, the objects that trigger the conceptualization of the mental consciousness and all the objects of the five senses appear while being non-existent. So outer phenomena appear but are non-existent. They don't exist as any particular thing because they're empty. 
the only thing that ever appears is empty phenomena. Non-empty phenomena just can't appear. They can't make it to the show. On account of the mind's beginningless habitual tendencies. So her, our habitual tendency is to concretize the uh, appearance of non-existent phenomena and assume that, that there's an extramental object that exists the way we perceive it. They're like hairs floating in the air as seen by someone suffering from the visual disorder, the floaters. Some may object saying that if this is so, phenomena bifurcate and become twofold because the appearing object and its perceived appearance, the appearing object is extramental and the perceived appearance is within the consciousness, are established as distinct. Which it might be replied that if that were so, the mind itself would be divided into two parts. For the opponent is implying that the mind that is the appearance is outside, extramental, while the mind that apprehends the appearance is within. To this, the opponent might answer that they are both the same in being the mind. They are one and the same kind, even though one speaks as though one were two. But here also, the appearing object that occurs extramentally through one's deluded tendencies and the perceived appearance to which this object is apprehended as something definite are both appearances of what does not exist. Mm. Both, the, both the appearance of an external entity is a deluded perception born from habitual tendencies and the, uh, um, the internal mental image is uh, very much the product of uh, deluded mental tendencies. They're not different even on the conventional level. They are both cases of deluded propensity. Since these two do not in fact exist, it is established that they're not distinct. So that's why he keeps alluding the issue of, well, are external phenomena separate from the mind or not? And he's saying they don't exist. The outer object and the inner perception, the inner image, mental image, Neither of them have any true existence, so you can't compare them and say, are they the same or different, Henrietta? Uh, one more time, you, you quickly unmuted and then somehow you were muted again. Uh, isn't that the traditional Madhyamaka? Well, he, oh, I see, he goes on to say, it's, isn't that the traditional emptiness appearance argument? I mean... I believe so, yeah, very much so. Okay. Uh, when this is examined from our own Madhyamaka point of view, not only is the appearing extramental object not said to be the mind, but even the perceived appearance, the mental aspect, is not said to be the mind either. The inner mind is not externalized as the outer world and the outer appearance. Appearances occurring for each of the sense powers are merely discerned inwardly by the mind. Eric? Yeah. Can we yes. just go back to the previous page for one second? Yes. At the bottom? Because I thought that he said that things do occur extramentally. And then he's saying that they don't exist. So that confused me. 
That is confusing, but that is the fundamental statement of the Madhyamaka view of reality, is that non-existent phenomena appear. Non-existent phenomena appear. So he says they don't exist, and yet they appear. Isn't it the case that we just don't know? We because don't. they're outside, the, they're extra mental, so we really have no idea. Maybe that's the point. Um, but, but when you analyze any type of phenomena, any phenomena, you can't find that phenomenon because it breaks up into parts that instantaneously disappear. So, so, but that seems like it's different from saying there's no mountain. In what way? Doesn't seem like, he, sorry, doesn't seem like he's talking about. Wow. Typical, this is typical of my neighborhood. It doesn't seem like he's really talking about emptiness here. He's talking about that there are things outside of the mind that we can't get to, basically. So we really have, can't say anything about them. Derek, isn't, isn't he saying that ultimately in, they don't exist, but relatively they still appear? I believe so. I mean, it seems that's all he's saying to me. He's, he's saying the mountain, there is no mountain. And... Um, Isn't it, it, there is no mountain as we think there's a mountain? Well, that, that implies that there is a mountain that's different than what we think. Okay. Okay. There is no mountain, and there's an appearance that doesn't have any uh, objective existence. And that's why he keeps using the uh, analogy of illusory and magical show. Because... Uh, the appearances are incomprehensible from a logical point of view. Normally we think, you know, real things can appear. And he, he and the Madhyamakas keep saying, only unreal things appear. Our mind says, real equals appear. And in, in their minds, unreal appears. Real does never appear. Anything that appears is necessarily unreal. And it's good that that's a quandary, because it should be. Big <laughs> <laughs> quandary. Yeah, yes, because all appearances are our own individual perceptions. And so ultimately they're not real. Eric, since you said that thing about the real never appears, someone has to ask the question, then what is real? <laughs> Truly existent. Existing from its own side. No, I just meant, is there any such thing? Is what I, I was more meaning in the... You know. 
the the pure the pure nature. What we're getting to the actual nature that the actual nature is real. That's the slippery one by comparison. Oops. So let's keep going. Um, uh, when this is examined from our Madhyamaka point of view, not only is the appearing extra mental object not said to be the mind, but even the perceived appearance, the mental aspect, is not said to be the mind either. For the inner mind is not externalized as the outer object, and the outer appearance is occurring for each of the sense powers are merely discerned inwardly by the mind. If the perceived appearance, the mental aspect, were left outside the mind existing as an outer object, it would be possible either for a person to have simultaneously two consciousnesses or else to be an inanimate thing because the mind is outside. I think that's a clunky way of saying that uh, um, there's, there's this tendency to view the perceived appearance as, set, as something that exists within the mind. But again, it has no existence. It's like the mountain outside. It's not real and it appears. The perception is not real and it appears. So isn't this the selflessness of persons and the selflessness of phenomena? The it, same idea? It's the selflessness of phenomena. Phenomena. Yeah. The selflessness of persons was the, un, the impure imputed nature. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, these and many other difficulties would follow. Therefore, although the apprehension of the appearance or non-appearance of something, both perception and lack of perception, is the mind. I'm sorry, therefore, although the apprehension of the appearance or non-appearance of something, i.e. perception and lack of perception, is the mind, the appearing object itself is not the mind. It's just as when the ear consciousness detects the sound of a drum, the hearing consciousness does not become the drum's sound. So appearances appear, but have no reality. But there's something there. I wouldn't, you, you don't necessarily, you can't conclude that. Why, why but he's, he's assuming that. He's saying that there is a sound from the drum. Oh, uh, sorry. Uh, there's nothing real there, but, but there is, an, there is a, a real appearance. This okay. It's a real appearance. <laughs> We, te we tend to concretize that that appearance and say, well, appearances are the appearance of something. And he keeps saying, no, they're just appearances. I find it very interesting and useful to um, think about color when I think about this stuff. Yeah. You know, one thing is like, if you're looking at a green ball, it, it's only green because you're looking at it in light. But if you're looking at it in a completely dark room, is the ball still green? Well, it's not. It still contains whatever pigment is on it that can reflect the right light to create green when there's light in the room. 
but it's a green ball in a dark room, a green, like still green. Um, and, and then the other thing I think about is the fact that there are all these, there are colors that we can't see. Like, I'll, you know, so I'm sitting here in this room and all of these objects have ultraviolet light and infrared, uh, sorry, ultraviolet color and infrared color to them. And I just can't see it. But, and so when I start to think about it that way, the things I use to concretize these objects like their colors through my visual sense, it starts to, I can't trust those senses the way I usually feel like I can. And it starts to kind of slip away a little bit. The only, only other, if I could piggyback on that though, the only problem I have though, is it still assumes a ball and colors are there. I think what, where my mind goes with that is that that's sort of an, an opening to everything else unraveling. So I can start with the green ball, but then I can apply it to the, the ball itself and to, you know, it, it, that feels to me like a, a, a doorway in to things not being as they appear. And, you know, I mean, not all the time, but I can kind of start to go down the rabbit hole of really then nothing is as it appears. So because both my, my, sense, my sense organs and my mind and the, the object are all completely dependent upon each other and none of them have any kind of fixed existence in and of itself. Um, it, it feels like a doorway into that kind of understanding. Well, that totally makes sense. But then he does say the evident fact is that we are all here, which to me would mean the evident fact is that the ball is there. Yes, but maybe it's a it's a different ball to each person perceiving it. Oh, of course, of and, course. And uh, Emily picked up on something interesting. There was a little article in the Times recently about the way um, hummingbirds see ultraviolet colors. And so their perception of flowers is totally different than ours. And likewise, there are lots of fish that sense electromagnetism and reptiles. So they th see things that we can't see. And it's a different reality. Yes. I, I tried to use physics, though, forever, um, in order to understand, um, and especially quantum mechanics, to try to understand concepts uh, presented in in um, in this in these uh, this uh, school of Buddhism and um, Derek I have to say you pulled that rug out from under me last spring and it's really been difficult since <laughs> because <laughs> I was like like other people are saying I was using electromagnetic fields and quantum mechanics and fields of probability, etc., to try to help me understand how something could be there and not be there and have a momentary existence or a probable existence. 
And then the, that was taken away from me last spring when we were studying emptiness because that was just yet another mental construct. So um, anyway, I'm just sharing that. <laughs> I don't know what to do with it at all. Speaking of that, did anybody see the um, or hear about the um, little movie about the physicist Bohm, B-O-H-M, I think it is? It was aired last weekend, and he was, and it's going to be aired again in about a week. So if you want to look up Mind and Life Institute, because they were the ones presenting it, but they had a uh, a little discussion on him and how he kind of rocked the physics world with his kind of going beyond. I guess going sort of beyond and outside of the norms of physics. Um, it was kind of an interesting story in terms of how he was somewhat rejected. Um, but um, he, he was, you know, he kind of connected with people like Krishnamurti. He had sort of a, a, a spiritual connection that allowed him to kind of go a little beyond and outside of, you know, understanding that physics or science itself is a construct that, um, so a little bit like what you were just saying that you have to, you know, let that rug go as well isn't the dalai lama a fan of his i think yes yeah, yes that's, that's... yeah that's what uh in fact the dalai lama was um part of some of these panels that were talking about this guy it was quite it was interesting i mean uh, anyway if anyone's interested look up mind and life and i think they're showing it again in about a week with another panel of buddhist teachers or something Derek, are, are, you you do, are you doing that on purpose? <laughs> Can't hear you. How's that? Can you hear me now? Mm -hmm. Oh, I pushed this little funny button on my uh, thing there. In short, although it seems that the mind is projected outwardly, it does not, in fact, go anywhere outside. It's, it's uh, observing the stay-at-home order. It is not the outer object, and since it is only the aspect of the outer phenomena that appears within, that which appears outwardly is not at all the inner mind. The mind doesn't actually go out beyond the mind. What then is the actual situation? Please tell us. The phenomena have no real existence. They nevertheless appear. I think I've said that a few times, though, but it's better when he says it, right? Do you believe, you know? Let me read that again. Though phenomena have no real existence, they nevertheless appear. For this reason, the whole array of phenomena that arise under different colors, white and red, appear in the manner of the falling hair seen by people whose sight is impaired by a phlegmatic disease. The things that appear are found neither outside nor inside the mind. The things that appear are found nowhere, are not found, not from somewhere in between. The things that appear are not found. While appearing, they have no inherent existence, or to put it another way, they're said to be empty of inherent intrinsic being. Therefore, insofar as both assertions indicate the assumption of real existence, both assertions of being like, you know, does the mind go outside or do objects come inside? There's no difference 
uh, in saying that phenomena exist as the mind or that they exist as something other than the mind. They're both equally false. It could be argued that the assertion that outer objects are not the mind, which is what he's been saying, is like that of the Vaibhashika view of the Shravakas. But it's not the same. The Vaibhashikas say that sense objects are inert phenomena existing by way of their own characteristics, which is what I think Laurie just asked. Um, so it's not that there's phenomena outside the mind that exist by way of their own characteristic from their own side, have their own intrinsic being. We, on the other hand, affirm that like dreams, phenomena are the hallucinatory appearances of our own habitual tendencies, which the mind perceives without their being existent. I think it's really hard to accept that we're hallucinating all the time. And therefore, it's, it's hard to accept this intellectually as well. But we are hallucinating all the time, whether you take LSD or not. Whether you take other drugs like food or water, those are the most powerful drugs, by the way, food and water and sunlight. Trying to get a smile out of Brent. Look at this guy. <laughs> Thank you. As the Queen of England says, thank you. Uh, let's see. We are on the other hand affirm that like dreams phenomena are hallucinatory appearances of our own habitual tendencies, which the mind perceives without their being present, existent. Such a way of being need not be refuted, even by the Madhyamakas, and is perfectly tenable. It's absurd, but it's tenable. Uh, but what is this? It will be said because we keep asking because we can't allow that there's non-existent hallucinatory things that appear. It will be said uh, the prasanka madhyamakas refute all assertions. So there's a challenge because he just made an assertion. Yes, but they do not refute mere appearance, perceived appearance. They don't refute appearances. What they do refute, however, is the assumption of the true existence of things. As Nagarjuna has said, appearance is not refuted, but just the thought that things are truly real. In the Chittamacha school, whereas the true, excuse me, aspectarians assert that the appearing phenomena is the mind, both they and the false aspectarians, and they really should come up with a different name. I think, by the way, something catchy, but say that the self-cognizing mind exists on the ultimate level. So this is their fault, this is their problem, their flaw, their tragic flaw, is that they fixate on the self-cognizing mind and say that it exists ultimately. Whereas really, it's just a relative appearance, self-awareness. This is the object of refutation for the Madhyamakas who go have a field day with it. On the other hand, how could the Madhyamakas refute hallucinatory appearances? How can you refute something that doesn't exist, which are the result of habitual tendencies and occur even though they have no existence? You can't refute them. And how indeed could they refute the assertions expounded correctly by the Chittamatra tenet system? He doesn't say what those are, but it'd be interesting to uh, postulate things like the eight consciousnesses, the all-ground consciousness, and so forth. For when the conventional level is positive, Madhyamaka and Chitta Matrams are in agreement. 
this is an unusual view because uh, many Prasangika Madhyamakas would disagree with this, but it, it sort of clarifies the type of Madhyamaka that Longchenpa is, where he holds the same relative as the Chitta Matra, but he's, okay. he's different. Hi. Was he after Shantarakshita? He was, yeah. So Shantarakshita is about 8th century, uh, 9th century, eight, 800s or so, and Longchenpa is about 1300. Oh, let's see. So much then for the dependent nature on the outer level. They sort of dispense with that. We must further then examine the position that just as a later cognition arises on the basis of an earlier cognition. Now he's going to explore dependent arising. First he'd like to explore the, the, the uh, uh, various aspects of uh, a nature that is dependent, and now he's going to explore the uh, nature of being dependent. We further examine the, the position that just as later cognition arises on the basis of an earlier cognition, perceived appearance, the mental aspect is also dependent on a preceding object, on account of which one speaks of the dependent nature on the inner level. So, and the inner level refers to the the internal world of the mind, where uh, one thought leads to another, one moment of mind leads to another, and uh, the perceived appearance has to uh, follow after a per, a, uh, a perceived object account of which one speaks of this. However, if one speaks in this way simply because it is on the basis of an earlier object that a perceived appearance subsequently occurs, this other dependence of, uh, of one moment of consciousness depending upon another moment of consciousness is simply a matter of words. So he's saying this is not the correct way to understand this. The fact is, they are the same thing when they say that they are different and separate, but since they are both the mind, they cannot be truly different from each other, the different moments of consciousness, the, uh, the internal appearance and the perceived, the perception of it. On the contrary, to claim that they are, that they are is a contradiction of our own tenet and is therefore incorrect. He's, he's talking about viewing the the uh, internal appearances of of mind in the way that the aspectarians do, as if they had causal efficacy, is incorrect. As it said in the earlier text, and it's unclear what earlier text he's quoting from, but probably the Yogacara Bhumi Shastra, because these various appearances seem to be dependent upon something else. One speaks of an imputed dependent nature, owing to the subject-object duality and of a pure dependent nature. So because these appearances seem, they, they appear to be dependent upon something else, whereas really uh, they're just a continuum of the same thing. That's not an other and of a pure dependent nature, although in truth they aren't dependent 
It is thus that they appear and thus they are explained. They don't have any entity, so they can't be different. Again, you can't compare whether they're the same or different. The actual nature is twofold. There's the changeless actual nature and the unmistaken actual nature. The changeless one is ultimately real, naturally pure. It's the inherent, the emptiness inherent in all things. And it's simply the case whether one is deluded or not. It's beyond our understanding of it. Whereas the other uh, actual nature is the way that we understand the actual nature. Um, since it remains so, without variation throughout the passage of time. It remains to be the ultimate, naturally pure nature throughout the passage of time, from the past, the present, and the future. It's said to be changeless. It doesn't become something else. It doesn't change into anything else. It's the fundamental way, uh, way of being a phenomenon, the emptiness inherent in, of all, in all things. Regarding this, three kinds of emptiness are posited, and um, I'm going to skip to the conclusion of this section of these three types of emptiness after he defines them. Uh, emptiness of self, emptiness of other, and emptiness of both. Emptiness of... Uh, and he gives two types for each of these. Let's skip to the bottom of 187. In short, oh wait, that's self-emptiness. Let's skip to um, 189. I'm sort of skipping this whole section on the different types of emptiness. Uh, because there, there's sort of gradations in, uh, in of different types of uh, mid-air, diff different types of emptiness that don't really add a lot to the, what he already explained in the, the emptiness of the imputed nature and the emptiness of the dependent nature, in, in my humble opinion. Um, so on 189, the, second, the first full paragraph says, thus when the three kinds of emptiness are subdivided, we arrive at six kinds, which can be grouped into two classes both of which transcend the intellect because they're inconceivable, the emptiness of things indicated by words, that is, phenomena are ultimately pure by their very nature, and the emptiness of the words that indicate them, um, which are the contents of the, uh, the intellect, is the words that indicate them. This is how emptiness of phenomena should be understood according to the Chitta Mantra. Um, yes. um, Derek, is he equating Chittamatra with Yogacara? No, I, don't, I don't know why he used Yogacara earlier and now Chittamatra. If he had used only the term Chittamatra consistently, I would have said that he was, he was equating the two and had not there, because in my, um, in my understanding, there was not yet a, uh, a significant division between the terms Chittamatra and Yogacara at this uh, time. At this time, did that come later? That's my understanding, but uh -huh. oh, okay. I'm, I'm a little I'm unclear why he's uh, using one and then the other. Okay. 
Finally, those who propound emptiness in the sense of a mere nothingness fail to understand the nature of emptiness and their doctrine is similar to that of the materialists, the charvakas. The emptiness of those who say that some things are empty, some things are not empty, is a lesser kind of emptiness. And here he's talking about the other emptiness people, or the... Uh, their view is similar to the teachings of the Eternalists as well as of the Buddhist Shravakas and Pratyeka Buddhas. All such doctrines fall into the extremes of believing in either permanent existence or annihilation, therefore should not be fallen. So basically he's eliminating all all possibilities by having self-emptiness and other emptiness in both. Finally, the unmistaken actual nature is uh, is the path of supreme liberation when the fundamental way of being a phenomenon is understood exactly as it is. The aspect of appearance is not discarded. The fundamental way of being a phenomenon is understood as it is. The aspect of appearance is not discarded. It is thus that on the relative level, merit is accumulated, and on the ultimate level, through the contemplation of the nature of emptiness, wisdom is accumulated through uh, persevering in the meditation on space like ultimate reality which is neither one nor many so when we're no longer deluded by the the appearance of unreal phenomena then we can go about collecting uh, merit we can go about accumulating merit and accumulating wisdom when we understand the two truths the um, the, the nature the way that non-existent phenomena appear. He quotes the Parshan what is thus what has been defined as unmistaken, i.e. the unmistaken actual nature is perfectly subsumed in the truth of the past. So um, when we understand the true nature correctly, then it becomes the path. It becomes our practice, our way of operating. In brief, on the unchanging ultimate nature, the luminous character of the mind is assimilated, and one, one, when one has realized that all phenomena are empty and being simply the imputed reality or nature, if one practices on the path, impure hallucinatory appearances together with the conceptual mind will be transcended or purified. And reaching the primordial state will require a perfect mastery of the pure Buddha fields of the inexhaustible ornaments of the enlightened body, speech, and mind. All the doctrines of the Mahayana are presented in this. So I believe that he's saying in that last paragraph, he's saying, um, when we realize that all phenomena, at the beginning of this paragraph, in brief, when the unchanging ultimate nature, the luminous character of the mind is assimilated, when we understand the pure, true nature, the, the third of the three natures, and when one has realized that all phenomena are empty and being simply the imputed nature, reality or nature, it's when one realizes the completely perfected nature, and when one realizes that all phenomena are uh, imputedly unreal or of the imputed nature then one can um, utilize the dependent reality to accumulate karma to accumulate positive karma and uh, progress along the path 
then if one practices on the path in pure hallucinatory experiences, which is the impure dependent nature, together with the conceptual mind, which is the basis for the impure dependent nature, will be transmuted or purified into the completely perfected nature and reaching the primordial state, etc. So the dependent nature is, is transformed into the completely perfected nature when one uh, practices the path with the understanding that all phenomena are of the, the uh, purely imputed, unreal, first nature of the three natures. The virtue of getting a, a glimpse of the true nature of the of reality of the of the mind. So that's the three natures, and we're almost out of time. So we'll we'll uh, go through the grounds next time. Just go through the, these slowly. It's fun. They're rather important and profound and hard to understand. Um, Let's see these these six types of emptiness. Maybe we can touch on them briefly. Going back to page 186, three kinds of emptiness: emptiness of self, other, and both. Emptiness of self, or self-emptiness, is twofold. On the one hand, things that do not exist according to their own ex characteristics, like the moon reflected in water, which appears to be there but is not. Um, so sort of basic level of emptiness of phenomena. It also refers to designations, conceptual designations that are empty by their nature and yet are causally effective, even though there's no difference between themselves, the designated and the other, the desig uh, sorry, the designation and the designated. So conceptual causation of uh, uh, conceptual, within the mind, conceptuality has a causal causal nature of its own, where one concept leads to another concept to another concept, all of which are empty. Other emptiness is twofold. On the one hand, there is an emptiness of that which is extraneous or beyond, i.e., of what is not possessed by a phenomena. And on the other hand, there is an other emptiness that refers to names, purely to names. Emptiness of both self and other refers to the emptiness of designations, those uh, which are related to both self-emptiness and other emptiness, which he basically just went through. Both of them had a designated emptiness category, and to the emptiness of the specific characteristics of names and things. So the the, the names and oh, sorry. Um, so, so both self and other emptiness <clears throat> relates to the emptiness of conceptual designation, the imputed nature, and refers to the emptiness of the dependent nature as well, which is the specifically characterized phenomena of things, dependent phenomena, which are empty appearances, and names, which are conceptual terms, but the actual names have sound in them and uh, they are also empty appearances regarding self-emptiness the following may be said the luminous in terms of the ground the luminous nature of the mind 
the Tathagata the Garbha, the essential element, is empty of every defect, and yet at the same time is replete with every excellent quality, even though from the point of view of the purity of the ultimate nature, is actually it is actually beyond the elimination of the negative and the accomplishment of positive qualities. So in the, in the ground, we have the, the element of uh, the Tathagata Garbha, which is the luminous nature of the mind, and uh, is without um, defects, is without defilement, and possesses all positive qualities of Buddha nature and Buddhahood, and yet is not... Um, is not impacted by the process of the past, of the elimination and uh, accumulation. Hallucinatory appearances, phenomena which arise in various forms together with cognition, namely the eight consciousnesses, have no existence in fundamental reality are and thus empty of a nature of their own. Which is what he was talking about in the dependent nature. These phenomena are also empty of their names, pillar, pot, and they exhibit a defective character, their deluded appearances. From the point of view of the purity of the ultimate nature, however, they are beyond the elimination of negative and the accomplishment of positive qualities. So he's sort of playing around between the three natures here, showing how the three natures come together and work together. And he's showing from the point of view of the dependent nature, there's work to be done. There's defilements to be overcome and uh, good qualities to be accumulated. But from the nature of the uh, the completely perf- from the point of view of the completely perfected nature, there is no change that happens. Um, in terms of the past, this too is empty by its nature while yet displaying certain qualities and defects from the point of view of the purity of the ultimate nature. The path transcends the respective elimination of negative and the acquisition of positive qualities. So looking at things from different points of view, from the point of view of the ground, there's the complete purity of the luminous nature of our minds as Tathagata Garma as the true reality of all phenomena. Beyond the need to uh, purify and, um, and so forth. However, from the point of view of the path, there is the, the need to purify and accumulate positive qualities. In terms of the result, when the ultimate purity is attained, this is empty of both defects and habitual tendencies, but it's not empty of the qualities of the Tathagata Garbha, which are finally actualized. So this is the, the really fine point in Tathagata Garbha doctrine or view, is how does Tathagata Garbha and the level of the ground differ from the Tathagata Garbha and the level of the fruition or the result, the end of the path? He said at the beginning, at the, at the beginning of the path at the ground, Tathagata Garbha is the true nature, the luminous nature of mind, um, it's the essential element, and it's empty of defects and replete with excellent qualities. And at the, at the level of the fruition, he says from the point of view of the ultimate, no, in terms of the result, when the ultimate purity is attained, 
This is empty of defects and habitual tendencies, but not empty of the qualities of the Tathagata Dagarbha, which, which is the same as the ground, the same description, except this part that says, which are finally actualized. For the path brings about the actualization of the qualities, the empty, the, uh, the qualities of the Tathagata Garbha. So this very fine w way of trying to describe some difference between the dog and the garb at the, at the level of the ground and at the level of the fruition. Because we're not uh, enlightened Buddhas at the time of the ground, and yet we possess Buddha nature. And that Buddha nature doesn't change. The Buddha nature is pure from the beginning and is pure in the end. And there's no change that, that occurs to the Buddha nature. But somehow there's this, this nuance, some nuance to it. And so they use this term actualized. From the standpoint of the purity of the ultimate nature, the result is beyond any, any activity, eliminating or accomplishing. For itself, emptiness means that each and every phenomenon is by nature unreal. It is empty of real existence. There is moreover a twofold classification of this surprise. Granted that the defining characteristics of phenomena are empty of themselves, either these characteristics have no existence at all, as in the case of a rabbit's horn, or else they appear to deluded minds but have no real existence, being empty like the moon reflected in the water. So the first is the uh, imputed nature, the imaginary nature, and the second is the dependent nature. Now, designations which are empty by their nature consist in the descriptions of names, words, and syllables. They're merely posited by the mind. They're not the specifically characterized objects themselves. So he's talking about the imputed nature again. A child may be given various names, but uh, the objective reference of the word lion is an animal with a turquoise mane, by the way. <laughs> Um, snow lions in Tibet have turquoise names, but neither the, the name nor anything nominally referred to is to be found anywhere in the child. Even you know, so we just apply names haphazardly, and so there's no reality, obviously, in the name. And it's, while it's obvious, we constantly make that mistake of of affiliating names with their the the objects they refer to. <sighs> All verbal ascriptions, the end of this paragraph, are the same. They're causally effective, i.e. they do the job of indicating something, even though they're empty of objective content. The term emptiness of other, other emptiness is used when a thing is said to be empty of something other than itself. Again, there's a twofold classification. First, there's emptiness of other that refers to something that is not possessed. In the case of a man, a son's being devoid of darkness, um, second, there's the emptiness of other that refers to names as in the case of the sons being referred to by various terms. For example, the light giver, characteristics. Also, it's classifications and expressions of particular features of the son's nature do not make contact with the actual specific, specifically characterized object, namely the son, which is a non-existent appearance. Thus, the sun is empty of other. 
So it's empty of all these uh, designations that we lay on it, and it's self-empty. That was the other emptiness. It's self-empty of having any true nature of being anything in itself, of any intrinsic being. Emptiness of both refers to the fact that all phenomena are both. In terms of their classification, emptiness of both has two aspects, of course. There's, uh, well, this is sort of repetitive. We went through this. Anyway, so it's a confusing scheme, the three natures. It's a highly confusing scheme and has a huge amount of subtlety in it. And to a large degree, he's talking to the Chitta Mantra view of these three natures, which is where this is developed. And he's making uh, slight changes to that view. Uh, the, the more obvious changes were where he said that the Chittamajan's fault is that they, they fixate on the self-aware cognition as being truly established, as being truly real. So, next week let's go through the various grounds. And maybe we'll, maybe we can go through like uh, the first part of the next chapter, the Tathagata Garbha, as much as we can get through. Vaguely possible that we can get through it, we'll see. <laughs> Any final comments? Any fireworks? Uh, Henrietta. It just seems like in the presentation of Tathagata Garbha or Buddha Nature that he could have resorted to poetry. <laughs> might have been a uh, an easier way to it lend itself to poetry yeah, yeah. have done that it's, it is odd that he didn't have that in the root text in the poem right, right. part of the text the Tathagata Garma mm-hmm. um, well we'll see what it has in store for us next week in that chapter there and uh, see how much we get through so thank you very much. Let's dedicate the merit to conclude. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves, birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the Grades. May the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Nice to see you all. Jill, we didn't see you, but nice to hear your voice. Gail, we saw you. You have two entities. That's cool. There's a relative and absolute Gail. And then there's Noir. We didn't see you, but nice to join us. And two, two Barb. One is Dufty, right? Barbara Dufty? I think so. And our lawyer is here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Neil. I had to unmute, but I'm here. It takes a while when you're not ready to. Okay. Thank you for joining us. Nice to see you. Sorry that this didn't go faster tonight. Hope you're not upset. Oh, good night. Thank but, you. Yeah, this was great. Thank you, Dan. It's always amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you.